Pray with me. Lord, we come before you and we give you thanks for this morning on this Epiphany Sunday as we remember the Magi who came from the Far East to bow down and worship the true King. And that's what we long to do even this morning as people who have been redeemed and forgiven. As you have gathered us into your presence this morning as the family of God, pray, Lord, that we would bow down on our knees, humble ourselves so that we might be transformed by the good word and the good news of Jesus this morning. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've entitled this sermon series, Living in a Fractured World. Now, I don't think we have to, or I have to convince any of us this morning that we are living, especially in the last few years, in our cultural moment, a fractured world. I was reminded of this, uh, was it late last night, or maybe it was two nights ago, when uh, the House was trying to vote for their House Speaker, right? Speaker of the House. And it took them 15 votes, the longest time since 164 years, I believe, for them to appoint or elect McCarthy as the Speaker of the House. In politics, whether it's that or what we've noticed in the last few years, a fractured politics. We think about even churches, as we've mentioned over the past few years, about the abuse in leadership, the things that went unreported, and the misuse of power that has been occurring within the church, and how even within the church and religion itself has become fractured. We look at our own society in the way we relate to one another, in the lack thereof of conversing and dialoguing with those that think differently than us, that we stay in our echo chambers, and the hatred and the vitriol that we have for the other that we consider enemy, because they don't think like us. We live in a fractured society. I could, give, I could go on and on about the ways we, or you can even think about the ways that we live in a fractured society. And, you know, we're called to live in this cultural moment. And this is where James, the book of James, comes in for us. Because here, if you don't know, James is actually wisdom literature. Yes, it's a letter. But many times we kind of think about wisdom literature in the Old Testament being Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Think about the book of Job. And those are wisdom literature. But in the New Testament, we have this beautiful gift that's been given to us by James, who is the half-brother of Jesus. He doubted Jesus, turned his back to Jesus, as we see in the Gospels. But at the end of Jesus' ministry, when he resurrects and ascends, we see James be transformed by the Gospel of Jesus, so much so that he doesn't mention and identify himself as familial relations to Jesus, but rather, what does he say in verse 1? A servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. His life has been transformed and he becomes a pillar of the early church. And he writes this letter to us in wisdom, as wisdom literature. So when we read this book and we go throughout this for the next three months in the book of James, what you get are like pithy, punchy statements that are very applicable to us. You don't get these long sort of exhortations and theological treatises about what does James mean about justification by faith, but rather they're very applicable. How do we dialogue and use our language with one another? 
What do we think is true religion? So applicable for us in our cultural moment right now. What does it look like to use our money? How do we deal with conflict? These are the very applicable ways that James writes his letter that is wisdom for us. But he also uses a lot of illustrations. He's almost like a great preacher, right? So you'll hear different ways that he talks about blazing forests, mighty ships with a little rudder. Talks about resilient farmers and wild flowers. He talks about looking into a mirror. And in these ways, this is exactly what we need. The book of James, wisdom literature for our fractured world. Because it's wisdom that helps us navigate so that we might be able to be living in a way that is wholesome, that is whole, actually, that is life-giving, that brings healing and restoration to a world that is desperately looking, honestly, for a way that would bring healing to a fractured world. That's what we're looking at, James, this spring semester, if you want to call it that, for the next three months. How does James help us navigate with wisdom a fractured society that we experience in our homes, in our workplaces, in your neighborhoods, online, social media? And this book helps us to do that. Now, James, unlike Paul, who writes a majority of the New Testament letters, what does Paul do? He introduces himself and he gives like a 10-verse greeting, right, to those that he's writing to, to those friends that he knows from that church or from that city. But guess what James does? Greetings. That's it. One word, and he jumps right in to what concerns him and what's on his heart. And what does he say? Verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now think about what James just said. It is so counterintuitive to our culture that tries to avoid, mitigate, try to end all the trials that we might go through. He says, consider it all joy. Count it all joy in our translation. Now, this, he's not saying put on a happy smile when you walk into church. Maybe that's been your experience. You got to look good. Just pretend you're doing well. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is consider it, count it, think about it. It's not so much of a feeling as it is a disposition. Consider it. Think about while you are in various trials that this might be joy for you. Not like a masochist, but that even amidst trials that you go through and various kinds, right? It's not just persecution. I think a lot of times pastors just kind of make it easy and say carte blanche like, it's just trials or persecution. No, he says various trials. What could those various trials be? Our church, our family here, we're going through those things, right? It could be dealing with aging parents, dementia, sickness, cancer. It could be broken relationships. It could be children driving you crazy, right? And the conflicts that brings. Or for you as teenagers, the ways your parents bring about trials in your own life. It's about unmet desires. For me, as I went to California to see family this past holiday break, 
is realizing there might be some things that never get resolved when I thought when I turned 40, now 44, that those have been dealt with, that I've gone through the therapy and counseling, but yet it rears its ugly head. And just that moment where I realized on that trip that things might never be resolved even when I die. These various trials, James says, consider it all joy. Well, why? In the brief time that I have this morning, I want us to be able to look at three reasons James gives us and why we can consider it joy when we go through the various trials that we experience. First, he says, it's endurance. Look at verse 3. He says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Another translation is that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. The reason we can consider joy in our various trials is because we learn to persevere. Now, in psychology and therapy over the last 10 years, what we keep reading over and over again in journals is that what we've done to our children by trying to avoid all the unhappiness and try to just give them a happy life has actually created a horrible situation where we see Children who are now in their 20s and 30s go through depression, anxiety, lack of fulfillment in any career or work that they're going through, unable to sleep. Why? Because as parents, and I'm guilty of this, we wanted to provide our children all the happiness that they could experience. In other words, to avoid all the discomfort, avoiding the failures in their life, avoiding the sufferings so that they might be happy children who are successful. But what has that's done is it's backfired. And where you experience these, these patients who are coming, who have perfect families, great relationships with parents, no trauma in their life, <laughs> who have great attachment with the relationships that they're in, healthy attachments, they're the ones who are experiencing unhappiness. Lack of fulfillment, depression, anxiety. Why? Well, the research has shown because they have not learned to persevere. There's a discomfort with discomfort. And what James is showing us is that it's not something that's 10 years old in finding this news and research. This goes back, way back to the beginning of time. Trials of various kinds helps us to persevere. And by persevering and this kind of steadfastness and endurance, it makes us people who are whole and complete. This is what it does for us. I shared with you guys on Christmas morning with my little homily, one of my kids, I'll never mention who, decided to give me dumbbells for Christmas. Why? Because she wanted, or one of my children, man, one of my children wanted me to get rid of my dad body. Horrible. I mean, I was so sad. But that was the reason. But as I think about those dumbbells now, which I've returned back to Target, <laughs> those, why do we exercise? Why do we work out? Why is strength training important? Because it isolates those muscles that help us to get stronger. Right? So what are those things? When you work out your muscle, when you do a pull-up or a curl, those muscles, as you work out, those muscles get stretched. There's tension. And those muscles get stronger. What are those things going on for you in your own life that you need to build up? 
It reveals the weaknesses or the character flaws that help you to grow, to become complete and mature in your walk with Jesus. The 9 a.m. service, I shared about how for some of us, God has blessed you with the good virtue of being able to be ruled and guided by principle, following directions, being above reproach, following the law to a T. I need that in my life, and my wife provides that for me. But when trials come into your life, what does it do sometimes? It exposes that, well, while I have the good virtue of being guided by principle, I'm highly critical of other people who don't. And what trials provide us as we work those muscles that are weaker, it gives us the ability to become mature, perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. That's why we can consider it joy when we face trials of various kinds. Testing and trials makes us resilient people. But the second reason why we can consider it joy is wisdom. Wisdom. When we face trials, what do we normally do? We want to try to resolve it. We want to try to get rid of it as fast as possible. Or we try to mitigate it. Maybe in this new year, you're like, I want to try to set myself up so that I will not experience any hardship or suffering this year because of how hard these last few years have been. But do you know what James is saying when he says here about wisdom is that wisdom is the most important thing we need when we face trials. When we face trials, not if, but when we face trials, it's not to just get rid of it or minimize it, but it's asking for wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, verse 5, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. This is a promise. And this promise reflects who God is in his character, right? He says, God who gives generously. He's not a miser. He's not stingy in being able to give good gifts. He wants and his desires to give you the gift of wisdom so that when you go through trials, you might be able to navigate those trials well. But he gives it also not just generously, but to all, everyone. He doesn't pick and choose who deserves it, and it's without reproach. Finding no fault in you. But this is a God who is gracious. When you ask, he will give you wisdom. Now what is godly wisdom, biblical wisdom? The way I heard it described is this. Think about GPS. I mentioned I went to California and not knowing the area that well. You know, what am I doing? I'm always using my phone to navigate how we get to that Korean barbecue restaurant or to that bakery or to meet friends. Now, when I pull up the address and I punch it in and I say, give, you know, map it, it gives me everything I need and all of those directions are right. It's not without any error. It tells me the time or how long it'll take me. But there are times, like I, I just went on when my friend was in the car and I mapped something and he gave me a certain place to get to, my buddy said, oh, no, 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 no. You don't want to do that. It wasn't because the directions were wrong. It wasn't because the road street names were wrong. It wasn't because the time was wrong. It was because he had the wisdom to know how to navigate his city. That if you took the route that they gave you, it would take an hour, but he was able to use wisdom to navigate the complexities of the traffic in LA to say, this will 
take us there in 40 minutes. That's wisdom. Wisdom is to be able to navigate the complexities of life. God has given us his word, and it is without error. It is infallible. And what we need in the midst of trials is wisdom, and God gives it to us who ask. So that we might be able to navigate well and be people who are whole and find healing and bring restoration in the midst of a fractured world. Wisdom is what we need. But he gives one qualification, doesn't he, in verse 6? He says, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. If, if the way we might interpret that is, then I would not qualify. God would not give me the wisdom that I need. But this doubting isn't that you need to be perfect in your faith, that you have no questions, you 100%, 110% know with certainty everything in God's word. No. This doubting is a double-minded man. Someone who does not follow God regularly. Who is not in step with the Lord. And when trials come, what do they do? God, answer my prayers. Listen to me. Deliver me out of this situation. That person is unstable, as James says. Is being tossed around like the wind. But those who are following Christ with the doubts... Lord, why am I going through this suffering? Are you really there? I don't understand. If you're loving, why would you do these things? No, that's not the kind of doubting. It's those who hedge all their bets and are willing to say, I'm willing to sort of hedge my bets with the world's ways, straddling the world and God, saying just, I need an answer. Those are the people James is talking about when he says, those who doubt are like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. But as we humble ourselves and pray and ask for wisdom, he will give us. And that is why we can consider joy. Because as we have our people who are defined by wisdom, biblical wisdom, navigating the hardship of life, there can be joy in the various trials we face. The last thing we see here and why we can consider joy in the midst of various trials is your position. Now it's odd, right? In verses 9 through 11, James starts talking about like the rich and the poor, those who don't have versus those who have. Why is James talking about that? Well, think about trials. And what is one of the biggest lies or deceptions that our cultural moment tells us? If you have enough money, if you have enough property, if you have enough saved up and stockpiled in your 401k or in, or in your IRA, if you have enough stuff, you have good kids, you're in a good relationship, and you're in the stage of life with married and kids, then you can avoid a lot of the trials of life, right? We believe that lie. Commercials and social media tell us that every single moment of every day, and we're inundated with that. And what James is recognizing is that it doesn't matter. It's about your position spiritually, not economically, not financially, not the property that you have. And so what he does is he engages both, and he says, to the poor, boast in your exaltation, not what you lack. Boast in who you are in Christ. You are loved. You are delighted in. Everything that is Christ and Jesus is, is yours. Even when the worst is known, 
about you. Love is still offered. So you might lack and you might think this will give me the security I need if I just made enough money, if I had a different job, if I got married, if I had a boyfriend or girlfriend, if I had better kids who listen. He's saying no, exalt in your or boast in your exaltation because of who you are in Jesus. In the midst of the trials you face, that is what security is. That's what will ground you, not more money. Not those that look down on you because you're, because you're destitute. But then he looks at the rich. He says, boast in your humiliation. Why? Because for the rich, you have everything you need. You want more, but you think if I have all these things, I'm secure and I could avoid the trials of life. But he says, that's not true. You're like, you're like a flower in the desert. And what happens? The sun comes up and it scorches you like the withering poinsettias this morning. You think you're safe, but you're not. Look at, look at what we've seen over the last month with, with um, Bitcoin and all the different ways that that's just crumbled. You might think that these things give you stability and a foundation that is secure, but it's not. You will wither away. So rather boast in your humiliation because you were once bankrupt spiritually. You had nothing. You were destitute for death. You were de- you're determined for death. But what happened? The good news of Jesus, he picked you up. He chose you. And he said, you're mine. Not because of what you have or your success is, but because you are destitute and I picked you up out of my grace and mercy. So boast in that. Boast in your humiliation. In other words, James is saying is, we can consider joy because of our position and our status with Christ. Most of us here this morning probably feel, fall, fall into the latter category of those with riches. The middle class, as you know, over the last 10 years is shrinking, and you're either going one way or the other. For the majority of us, we're getting richer. We have plenty. And I thought about even just as I reflected on this, where do I find rest? I think rest comes from vacation. Save some money, go to California. But what happens, you come back and with the Southwest debacle, you're just like, oh my word, like this is horrible. I'm, I need another vacation. But when we find our possession, position in Christ, what do we realize? Rest doesn't come from vacations and money and going splurging and having nice food and a nice hotel to stay in. Rest comes in God, our position in Him. That His yoke is easy. His burden is light. That's why Paul or James says, boast in your exaltation, boast in your humiliation. When we face and meet trials of various kinds, we can consider wisdom because we become steadfast, people of endurance. We become wise, being able to navigate life. And we remember the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done for us in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension. We are his. We are adopted into his family. As I close, I want to share just what Johnny Erickson Tata shared. I've shared about her in the past, but at 17 years old, she became a quadriplegic. And her disposition, as we think about considering joy, was that many in her life saw her filled with joy. And when asked why she's able to rejoice in her suffering, this is what she said. 
Some people ask how I can smile despite a broken neck, quadriplegia, battling cancer, and chronic pain. My answer, Jesus, the man of sorrows. Jesus was humiliated, flogged, beaten, and accused of a wrong he had never committed. He was crucified, hung on a cross like meat on a hook. For six grueling hours, Jesus endured excruciating, harrowing pain to the point of crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's on days like today when I experience terrible pain, when I too feel like perhaps God has forgotten me, that I am reminded that I am not alone. Jesus bore abandoned by his father so that he might say to me, I will never forsake you, never leave you. God sees and he sees our misery. He hears our cry. He knows our pain. And because of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we can also rejoice in the various trials that we meet. Hebrews 12, the Hebrew writer says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, the joy that was set before him, endured, persevered, steadfasted, if I could make up a word, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Because of Christ, we can endure. Because of Christ, we can ask for wisdom. It's because of Christ, we know our position. It's because of Christ, we can consider joy in the various trials that we will face this year. That's why I think James, verse 12 is so beautiful. He creates a beatitude like his brother did, Jesus. You know the beatitudes? Well, he creates his own and he says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful promise that you have given to us, that while we endure and persevere, while you grant us wisdom and we are reminded and encouraged of our position in Christ, Lord, there will be a day where we will never face a trial ever again. Sin will be no longer tears will finally be erased and we will be able to enjoy the pure bliss and flourishing that you always intended for us to have but until then help us lord to consider joy because lord of the joy that was set before you you endured the cross despising this shame so that, lord we might be able to enjoy even experience life to the full in the midst of trials. Help us to do that even as we come to the table now, as we're reminded of your body and your blood that was shed for us. Help us to remember you never forsake us. You give us everything that we need, even here, these ordinary elements, so we might be strengthened for just this week with this food and spiritual food that will ultimately nourish us and strengthen us for the call that you have given to us to endure. Do that good work as we come to the table now. In Jesus' name, amen.